You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. What, after all, is Apollos? Now, Apollos, if you guys remember, it was one of the leaders in the church in Corinth, and people started to follow Apollos. If you remember at the very beginning of uh, 1 Corinthians, um, Paul was saying, some of you guys are like following Paul. Some of you guys said, well, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm of, of Peter. Well, I'm of Jesus, like the hyper-spiritual people. And so he, he rounds off his whole conversation here in verse 5. He's like, what after all is Apollos? And what is Peter? What is Paul? And he says, only servants. Through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned each his task. I planted a seed, the seed, and Apollos watered it. But God has been making it grow. It's been God. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. As you can tell here, he shifts metaphors. Okay, it was a field, now it's a building. By the grace of God that, that God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day, capital D, the day, judgment day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If one has built, um, is, if what uh, has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. He'll receive a payment. Good job. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer, suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you for this beautiful word this morning and how you care so much for your church. Though it has taken bruises and punches and beatings, though it is, it is responsible for horrendous things in its history, you, you love the church. You love your church. Jesus, you are the savior of the church. You bought the church with your blood and it's precious to you. It's precious in your sight and you care for it. And I pray today, by your spirit, God, that you would wash this church clean that you would reveal to us, that you would show to us the beauty of it, your purpose for it, that you would um, empower the leaders of this church specifically to lead and to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ with precious, uh, 
solid materials that last, God. May you build this church into a temple that, that as we gather together and as we meet together, the presence of God is so near us and so tangible that everybody knows, everyone would know, God is in their midst. Would you do that? And I pray that as we explain these things now, I pray, God, that you would anoint me. I need your help desperately to explain these wonderful things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I'm not spiritual. I'm religious. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that? I'm not spiritual. I'm religious. Now, those in the church and those outside the church have made this saying very popular. Both sides have made this saying popular. Uh, hey, listen, I'm not, I'm not like the religious fanatic. I'm spiritual. I have a relationship with God. Now, those in the church use this to mean that they love Jesus, but the established church is screwed up, and they don't go to a super religious church because their church uses like fog machines, and the pastor wears graphic tees and stuff like that. Like, I don't go to a religious church, man. We don't do that stand-up, sit-down thing. We just don't do that. Like, our pastor's super cool, and our church is super hip. Churches, people in the church that say, I'm not, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, say it to mean that their church isn't liturgical or religious. Now, those that don't go to church, and there's, I, I, I meet these people all the time in this city. Those that don't go to church use this, I'm spiritual, not religious, to mean they don't need the church. I don't need the church. I can pray. I can have a relationship with God apart from the established, organized religion or the religion, uh, religious organization or the establishment of the church. I don't need to gather with people. I don't need to be part of anything. I can pray by myself. I can meditate by myself. I can be spiritual outside of church. I don't need the church. I'm spiritual. This week on Salon.com, which is a news website, they actually had its headquarters here in San Francisco. There was an article on this very subject. It was called, Are You SBNR? There's even like a, a thing for it, whatever, that's acronym or whatever. Are you SBNR? Are you spiritual but not religious? And the, and the subtitle of this article was, Do You Believe in God but Not Organized Religion? Reverend Lillian Daniel, which wrote a book, she wrote a book on this subject, questions your self-styled spirituality. I love that description. Self-styled spirituality. And so this whole article is on this book pushing this idea of like you have this self-styled spirituality. You kind of tailor it. It's custom made to what you believe, what you think. See, the church has always taken beatings. But in our Western radically individualistic culture that we find ourselves in today, we feel that we can ditch the church and the people in the church and have a self-stylized spirituality all our own. Now I know that the, the established church is partially to blame. The church and its, and, and its organized sort of ways have done a lot to mess things up, done a lot of things historically to screw things up. But what if we stopped and tried to see the church for what it really is? What if we stopped this morning and paused for a bit and tried to see the church for what it really is? and what it was intended to be by Jesus and the early founders of it? What if we started to define the church differently than maybe the established church does or people do? What, what if we started to define the church for what it really truly is? We got right back to scripture and go, how does Paul define the church? How does Jesus want the church to be built around him? In this salon.com article, it 
it said, and as it was critiquing this book and talking about this book, about SBNR, it said this, quote, it becomes clear that what is most, most important for her, Lillian, the, the author of this book, what is most important for her about Christianity is community. This, I think this is actually a very good definition of the church. And this is Slon.com, people. <laughs> the people who, you are, who are stuck with you. That's the church. The people who are stuck with you. What makes Christian community different from other kinds of community is the fact that it is shaped by a tradition of particular narratives and rituals and practices that at least ideally push back against self-serving consumer capitalist culture. The establishment of the church and the traditions of the church and the narratives that the church, the scriptures that the church puts itself under, what it does as a community is push, pushes back against the self-serving consumer capitalist culture. It is for this reason, the lack of commitment to being stuck with any particular community of sinners, that the SBNR, BNR are particular targets of her judgment. I believe, and this article was, I thought this article was great. What we need to do is we need to recapture what the church is. It is a community of sinners that you're stuck with. It is a group of people that you're stuck with, that people might not agree with you. They have different practices than you do, that have different ways they, 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 they interpret certain texts, and you're, but you're stuck with them. You're stuck to wrestle it out, to wrestle through it. There are leaders in the church, even though I know we don't like authority. There are leaders in the church, in the community of the church that help shape that community around practices, around narratives, around the scriptures. And these practices will push back against self-serving consumer capitalist culture. If you've gone to this church for several months and there hasn't been a push against this individualistic sort of worldview that you have, if there hasn't been challenged, then I don't, I don't think you've really submitted your life to this church yet. This church will push back against that sort of angst that you have to be this individualistic Western sort of, I, I make my own self-stylized Christianity. But through it all, through all this pushing, it pushes us on to maturity. And this is what Paul is after in our text this morning. He wants his church, the church that he planted in Corinth, to be mature, to grow up. And the way of maturity for Paul is understood in light of three things. And these are our three ways that we're gonna be going through our text this morning. Three metaphors, this is the longest point. One judgment in all things. Those are our three headings. Three metaphors, one judgment, all things. All things happens to be my favorite point, just saying. But three metaphors will be the, probably the longest point. So let, let's get to the, the, the first one. Three metaphors th that Paul uses to push the church on to maturity. And what he's gonna do right now is he's gonna deal with leaders in the church. And so the first metaphor is God's church as a field. Did you pick up on that as we were reading? You, you may not know this because you live in San Francisco. I live in San Francisco where there is no Christian culture in San Francisco. There might be one obscure Christian bookstore deep in the sunset that I've only heard of. <laughs> I've not seen it with my eyes, but people say it's out there. There is no Christian culture in San Francisco. There are no Christian megachurches. Churches of five, 10, 20,000 people. There are churches in America that have 20,000 people. Did you know that? You guys are like, yeah, I'm from Texas. I know that. <laughs> if 
you're from Texas, you know that. Twi- like these, there are giant mega, super mega churches. There are no mega churches in San Francisco. There are no pastors in the city with their face in fr- on the front of magazines or have books on the New York Times bestseller list or have 20,000 followers on Twitter. We don't have a Christian culture in the city. Actually, the, one of the, the, the um, people that works at, I read this article, this, this girl that works at Twitter when they were, they were sent feeling that uh, they did this comparison of pe- the people who had the most leverage on Twitter. They said, actually, pastors have the most leverage. The people that get the most retweets, retweets per, um, per followers are megachurch pastors. And so to understand this, this person who worked at Twitter had to leave San Francisco to understand Christian culture and move to Atlanta. Like, they, they, there is none here. Like, I'm going to study Christian culture. You do not come to San Francisco to study Christian culture at all. So because there is no Christian culture here, you may not know this, but Christianity is celebrity-obsessed. Christianity is celebrity-obsessed, and it's really gross. People in the church align themselves under certain pastors. People in the church align themselves under certain movements, under certain churches and networks and denominations, and they plant a flag and they say, I'm all about this pastor. I'm all about this movement. I'm all about this thing. You might not know that because you live here. And when you go back home or wherever, you leave San Francisco, you realize, oh my gosh, I've never even heard of that person. Like, oh my gosh, they're the biggest thing. They have a book on best. Like, nobody knows. The church should not be built on men or women. The church should be built on Jesus. Now, this is where I want to interject a warning for this church. I actually would like to interject a warning for this city, but I, don't really, I can't really do that, but so I'll interject it for this church. There might be a day in San Francisco, there might be a day coming in this city where there is more of a Christian culture. Maybe. I'm not trying to, we're not trying to do that, but that might happen as more people come to follow Christ and there might be a Christian, an actual Christian culture in San Francisco. And there might be like five or six giant churches in San Francisco. And the warning is this, do not, for the sake of the gospel, do not start aligning yourself under certain pastors or churches disdaining the other ones. Do not do that. If there is five large churches, don't say, well, I'm of, this, no, I'm that, that pastor, I'm this pastor. Do not do that. May there not ever be a celebrity culture in San Francisco. As God begins to do this, and we have fresh ground because there's not a Christian culture as we build it, may it be built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and the unity of the believers around the city. May it be built on that. And this is, this is the warning that I want to express to this church. This is, this is exactly what was happening in Corinth. Now, a little context. There wasn't any mega churches in Corinth. Hey, there weren't. Uh, the church is, uh, is still somewhat, is very young. It's a, uh, still a persecuted minority. They met in homes throughout the city. But there were celebrity pastors in Corinth. And they were Apollos and Paul and Peter or Cephas. They were celebrity pastors that people were aligning themselves under. No, I'm, I'm of Paul. I'm of Peter. No, I'm of Apollos. So Paul, the author of this letter, says, what, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Notice he says what, not who. He goes, he doesn't say, hey, who's Paul? Who's Apollos? He says, what is Paul? And what is Apollos? And what are they? They are servants. Every Christian leader and pastor is simply a servant. 
That's it. Remember, this is going to come full circle, so remember servants. These are your servants. Paul and Apollos and Peter are leaders in the church, and their task was to simply serve. What Paul is saying is that the church is God's field. God causes the growth, and we are field hands. That's it. We are tools. We are tools in the hand of a good farmer. And why would you align yourself under a tool? Why would you say, I am of shovel, and I am of rake? Why would you do that? That's so dumb. And all Paul and all Apollos are tools. We're servants. We're field hands. We're, we're, that's all we are. We have a job. We have a task. God has given us a task to do, and we're doing our task. Paul then goes and, and, and goes into the underpinning of biblical leadership in the church. So leaders in this church, team leads and community group leaders and people on the prayer team and, and, and staff and pastors and future pa- pay attention here. Because what Paul does is he gives the underpin. What is real leadership? And Paul says leaders have a task that is assigned to them by God. It's a, the Lord assigned the task. Look, look, look there at verse, um, verse five. Only, we're only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned each his task. God's given leaders a task, period. That's it. And our job, our responsibility is to be faithful to that task. We are not responsible for the growth that comes from that task. We might be responsible to care for the growth, but we're not responsible to make the growth happen. All growth happens by God. Leaders are utterly powerless to make seed come to life. Only God makes seed come to life. And in verse six, he says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. All I've done is we've come in here and I preached the gospel and Apollos came in after me and explained some things to you. But the reason why you're growing, the reason why this church is growing is because of God. Not because of Paul, not because of Apollos, not because of any servant. We have a task and we were doing it. God has grown our little church over the last three years to a fairly large church by San Francisco standards. We can probably admit that. And I will get questions all the time from people asking how we did it. When I meet pastors or leaders in other areas, how did you do it in San Francisco? What's the secret sauce? There's even some people that want to bottle the sauce. They're like, how do we bottle it and get it out, to every, get it out everywhere? And, and I, all I say is this, hire an Egyptian. That's it. Like, hire an Egyptian, <laughs> let them loose, boom, instant church. Um, I don't say that. Um, I don't know. I, I just say I have no, and they think, oh, you're just trying to, you're just trying to, you're, oh, you're being so humble. I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not being humble. I don't know how this happened at all. I have no idea. We are not, to be completely honest. If you think that there is something going on here that was not going on in another church just blocks away from here, you're mistaken. You're deceived. If you sat and I, connect with pastors of the city all the time. The thing that they're doing and they're praying for and the way that they're preaching the gospel is no different than what we're doing here at all. I cannot explain it at all. No, I, I, I don't really want to explain it. I, want, I actually want to be a part of something that's unexplainable. There, there are, not to say there's not Christians in the city. There are wonderful Christians and we're not the first church in San Francisco there have been so many churches that have been praying and laboring in the gospel in the city for generations upon generations, and I thank God for all the work they've done in the city. Thank God for them. Yes, praise God, yes. 
What I say by Christian culture, and, you, and, I, and I think that you, you, because you live here, you don't know what, you might not understand what Christian culture is. It's not the good kind. It's not the good kind of Christian culture. The Christian culture that I'm talking about happens in, around celebrities and celebrity pastors and um, where everyone's wearing Christian t-shirts and everyone has their, their Christian bands come through all the, like a Christian subculture, I guess I should say. There's not one here. And that's what I mean by that. So the leaders in this church need to pay attention on how we build on this church, how we build. Now, this church here in, in the city, there, there's nothing going on in this church specifically that is different than any other of the churches that go on in the city at all. And so God makes this grow. I can't explain the growth, and this is exactly what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. You can't explain the growth. You shouldn't explain the growth because God causes it to grow. God does that. No human person, no pastor, no preacher, no celebrity. If you think it was because Apollos came in after I came in, you're mistaken. If you think it's because Paul planted this church, you're wrong. It's because God caused it to grow. That's why. And this is what Paul is saying. God caused this church to grow. Now, the church here is responsible now for what they do with the growth. You and I are responsible for what we do with the growth of this church. And I think the people in this church have as much to do with the blame of this than the pastors do. Listen, the church here in Corinth and the church in the city has as much to blame for what they do with the growth than the leaders do. Leaders in the church can abuse the growth. They can use all the power that comes from the growth to make a name for themselves. They can say, I'm gonna use all the power, I'm gonna harness all of it to build a brand for myself. To start acting, I'm gonna start acting like a king more than a servant, more than a field worker. That's the problem with, that's a lot of problems with the celebrity culture. Pastors harness the power that their church gets to build a, a, a brand for themselves. So what Paul writes is this, leaders, you are servants. That's what you are. You're a servant of the living God. That's all you are. You're nothing more than a servant. And because you're a servant, you might be lead servants. You're leading, but your example must be to lead as a servant. But the church can be much, as much to blame as the leaders. The church can give a, a leader a brand. The church can, can think that they're infallible. The church can use them and say they're amazing one second and the next second discard them like they do with every other American celebrity. Well, they're not as influential anymore. Oh, those, were, those people were, that pastor is a has-been. He was amazing at one time, he's not anymore. And the church can do that. They can give a leader a brand. And to that, Paul would say, these leaders are your servants, not celebrities. S servants are to teach and rebuke and exhort and to pray and to push toward maturity in Christ, and that's it. Leaders in the church have one purpose. That's it. And this is the purpose. Look at verse 8. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. The one who plants, the one who comes in and starts the church, and the one who comes in after and leads has one purpose. And he says, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For, the one, for we are co-workers in God's service. Can I say that the pastors in San Francisco, the ones that I know, that I spend time with, that I pray for, that I pray with, they have one purpose. Every single one of them want to see people come to know and follow Jesus, and that's it. 
That's what I know of the pastors in San Francisco. We're not competing against one another. The pastors and the churches are not competing against one another. We have one purpose. In verse 9, that word co-workers is the Greek word um, synergoi, which means where we get our word synergy. There's a synergistic working together to bring about the renewal of the gospel of Jesus Christ in San Francisco. There should be synergy. We should be working together, not fighting against one another. So this has led us to this morning when we were praying for the church, we are praying our our pre-service gathering, I was kind of giving them a little like taste of what this was going to be about. I'm like, guys, we need to pray because I want want there to be this, like as God builds his church in in the city, as God begins to bring in um, more and more churches, more and more churches are being planted here all the time. People are coming to Christ in the city. As God does that, let's just pray that there's not this like, all this division that happens. Well, I'm of this, and I'm of that, and I like this person, I like that. Let's just pray that that just, it's, all that is squashed. And, and we had a, people kept wanting to keep praying and praying and praying. I want to invite you to pray for this. As a church, can we just get behind going, let's bless the other churches that are, are meeting here. Let's bless them and their work that they've been doing here for generations, some of them for just weeks. And be a part of what God's doing in this entire city. See, we're, we have one common purpose. That's it. And the purpose is to follow, submit to Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. Paul then completes the metaphor by saying, by explicitly saying, we are workers, servants, field hands. You are God's field. And then he changes metaphors. He says, you are God's building. And then he changes the metaphor to the second metaphor is you and I are God, the God's church is God's building. Now verse 10, it says, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care. Now, Paul is, his main concern for the church is this. As one whom God used as a servant to start this church, to build it from the ground up, those leaders in the church now, because Paul has left them, must continue building the church with integrity. Paul is saying, I'm a head contractor and I subcontracted out the work. The subcontractors that, that build with material that's not up to code, they fail to use really good lasting materials. Might, it might seem okay for a while, but, and they might cut some corners, and they might pocket some money, and they might cheat here and there. But one day, there will be an earthquake. One day, there will be a fire. And, the, and that fire, and that earthquake, or whatever comes to test the work uh, of their building, will show the real true quality of their work. So build with good material. And the question is this, what is what you're building, will it stand? Let me, let me, let me show you, share with you the point of this metaphor. It would be like me saying this. With the help of a few others, I built this church on the foundation of Christ, Reality San Francisco. Head contractors, so to speak. Now community group leaders, team leads, ministry team leads, you are subcontractors. Be afraid. I mean, take that, feel that, feel that weight for a second. You are subcontractors. You are, and the question is, how are you building? Are you building on the foundation of the gospel in your community groups? As you lead ministry teams in this church, are you building on the foundation of the gospel? Are you building your community group with Christ as its center? If so, it will be solid and precious and lasting. But if you are building your CG on your personality, out of your, 
out of competition or using the wisdom of the world, be warned, Paul says. That's shoddy material that is not worthy of God's building. And not to say that community groups can't and churches can't shut down and morph and change. That's not what he's saying at all. But is what you are building lasting in the people that you're leading? Is the kingdom of God being built in that person and in this people, in that group, is the kingdom of God being built? Because this is the point. We're not just building any building. You and I, the church, are not just any building. We are the temple of the living God. That's the point. That should be the way. You're not just building a building. You're not just building a, a coffee house. You're not just building a, 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 a home. You're building a temple. God's church, the last metaphor is God's church as a temple. Verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? You guys, the church gathered, are God's temple. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Now, I have to confess that I've always read this verse wrong. I've read it individually, like, and not corporately. I don't know if you've ever done this. Like, I always read the Bible to me, and it's really to us. So I, th- I thought this was talking about suicide or something. Like, I've always thought that. Like, if I destroy my body, like, God's going to kill me. Like, it kind of is counterintuitive, though. I don't, it doesn't really that make that much sense. And that's not what it's talking about. It has to do with the church, the gathered community, the people that you're stuck with. The you in this text is plural. It reads better y'all. I learned that in Texas this week. <laughs> Do you know that word? Do you guys use it? Y'all. So if you read this, don't y'all know <laughs> that y'all are, the, are God's temple. That's what this is saying. Not you are God's temple. Y'all are God's temple. This here is God's temple. And what Paul does here is, see, for, the Jews, for Jews like Paul, the temple in Jerusalem, which still stood at the time of this writing, had been understood as the central locus of God's divine presence in the world. It was the center, it was where God's presence dwelt. The temple was where God was. And what Paul does in this, in this marvelous way is he transfers that claim to the church. He says God's presence, Jesus started to do this, by the way, in his ministry as well. God's presence breaks out of the temple and starts meeting as People are gathered together in his name. God's presence is there. Now, how are we supposed to view that? Well, first of all, we have to realize that the scriptures have a high view of God's church, a very high view. God thinks of very highly of his church. We are the temple of the living God as a community. What does that mean? A couple of points of application here. First, it means that the spirit of God is present and alive in the community of faith. That when we gather, God's presence is here. We've, had, we've heard many times here that when people just walk into the room, something's different about this place. Sometimes they say good vibes, good aura, and they just start crying or something like that. That's, and it's when God's people gather together, God's spirit is alive in the community of faith. This is a place where praise and worship are rightly offered to God. And we should desire to gather together to experience God's presence. We should want to do that. Secondly, the spirit is no longer localized in a sacred building. Though I would love a sacred building so much, that's not where God's community gathers. It's found wherever the gathered community is. And so we were at the Swedish American Hall just two blocks away. And we prayed that God's spirit would meet with us. And we're almost guaranteed it because the Swedish American Hall wasn't the sacred building. 
It was the people of God that were the sacred people of God. And so we just moved God's presence right here. That's what we did. We took that and we just moved it because God's people moved two blocks away. And now we meet here. This is a place of God's presence. And what we would pray almost every Sunday at the Swedish American Hall and that we pray here is that turn this hall into a sanctuary. Turn this school into a sanctuary of the living God where God's spirit is. And this also happens in community groups. This also happens at prayer meetings. This happens when the church gathers together. The third point of application is this should cause us to seriously reflect on what it means to be God's holy community. If God is in our midst, we should order our lives away from self-styled spirituality. We should really focus in on, this is what community groups should be praying through this week, how do we, as God's gathered people, gather with reverence and honor to bring glory to God? And lastly, this is the, probably the funnest point. We should open our lives to the freedom of God to move in our gatherings. He may be leading us to pray for someone in this church. He may give us a word for the church. He may be leading us to raise our hands in worship. Maybe, just maybe, he might even have you move a little during worship, like this. (laughs) Some of you guys, there's like one section here that is like, gets crazy, and then everyone else is like, yeah, that was good, like this, like... (laughs) You might, like, freedom, like, there, you can raise your hands. You could, like, move a little bit. You can kneel. Like, there's freedom. Like, let, allow God's spirit as our, in our time of response, not now, time of response after, <laughs> after the church, after service, or after the, the sermon. Freedom to, to, to let the spirit of God move. Like, pray for people and, and pray for this church and, and sing loudly and raise your hands. Respond to God. Let the, let the freedom of the, uh, of the Lord be in this place. The second point, and I said the first one was very, very long. It is. The second two are very short. There's one judgment. And Paul says that one day, if you're building with these different materials, you're going to pass through the fire of God's judgment. And this is not purgatory. And this is not individual judgment. This is corporate. And this is the final divine testing of the character of a church as constructed by the leaders. And this scares me to death. Reality San Francisco will stand before God and this church will go through the fire of God's judgment and God will bring to light every motive, every material that we use to build it and every moment in this church. And the question is, what are we building with leaders? Are we building with fireproof material so the gospel is around the gospel of Christ and him crucified or are we building with fluff, the fads of human wisdom? Leaders in this church don't think that you can escape this. This is for all of us, especially the pastors here, but this is for all of us. And that's Paul's point to the entire church. And lastly, Paul says, this is my favorite part of this whole section. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. Stop with your celebrity pastor thing. Stop. Stop rallying behind and boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. See, when you say, I belong to Apollos, he becomes your master. He says, whether you, Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And so he, Paul's saying, when you say, hey, I, I'm of Apollos, guess what? You align yourself under that celebrity and you become a fanboy or a fangirl or whatever. And you start dressing like them and you start talking like them and you start believing like them and it's gross. And it happens all the time with certain pastors and certain leaders. 
and it happens in the church. Like all of a sudden I start preaching like them, I start dressing like them, I start acting like them. You start aligning yourself under, and guess what? When you say I am of this person, they become your master. I can only have Apollos. I can't have Paul really because I've aligned myself to, under Apollos. I can't have Paul's teaching because I've committed my life to Apollos and Apollos becomes my master and not my servant anymore. Does that make sense? Paul or Apollos becomes my master. But what, what does Paul say that they are? They're not your master. They're your servants. But if I think like Christ wants me to think, I am of Christ and all things are mine. All things are my servants. They're there to help me follow Jesus. They're helping, to, they're helping me to mature. So I can follow Paul and Peter and Apollos and this pastor and that pastor and this. I can learn from everyone. You know why? Because they're all my servants. They're all my servants pointing me to Jesus, pushing me towards maturity in Christ. So I can listen to people who are on the opposite sides of, of, of even some sort of, of some doctrines. I can listen to people on opposite sides and I can pull the truth from them and they can both be my servants. So when you align yourself under a certain pastor, guess what, that, person, that pastor becomes your master. But when you say, you know what, I'm of Christ. I'm of Christ and all things are mine. So I can listen to that person and that person and that person and I can learn from them and I can learn from them. But Paul goes meta. He goes way bigger than that, which is what I love. He says this, and because the world belongs to Christ, if it's true, and beautiful, it belongs to Christ. And if it belongs to Christ, it belongs to you. All things are yours. So what Paul is saying here is that not only can you learn from Christian teachers, but you can learn from all teachers. There was a debate on this program called Q&A from Australia that I watched. And it was with Lawrence Cross, who's a theoretical physicist and a cosmologist and the director of the Origins Project. He's this leader of what people are calling the New Atheism. And then John Dixon, who's a director of the Center of Public Christianity in Australia. And they were debating uh, science and faith. And they were debating these things. And what John Dixon kept doing throughout the whole thing was agreeing with everything that, that Lawrence Cross was saying. Everything that Lawrence was saying about science, as soon as he was done, John Dixon would say, I agree with that. And then Lawrence is getting angry, like, no, that's mine. Like, that's, that's mine. And, then, and, then, and it kept on going back and forth. It's like, I would agree with that. The only thing I would add is, is this. And he would, he, would, he would say something else about the gospel. And then he would say something else about the gospel. And then Lawrence would say something about science. He goes, I agree with that. And Lawrence was like, what the heck? You can't. That's my thing. You can't take my thing. And John kept taking it. And then one time, brilliantly, he interjected the gospel in it. He said, because I see, and he quoted C.S. Lewis, because I see Christ, I can see all things. Like C.S. Lewis said, because I see the sun rising, I, I don't believe just because I see it, but because by seeing it, I see all things. He said, that's how I see Christ. He goes, I get science, I get, I get all of it, because through Christ, I see all things. And then Lawrence Cross got angry at this point. He's like, you can't, science can't, he said, Christianity can't explain how planes fly. So you can't say you see all things through Christ. And then John Dixon replied back, but science does, and science is mine. And you know why science is mine? Because it belongs to Christ. Because if it's true, it belongs to Christ. And so science is mine. And then, and then he said at the end of it, Christians get all the science that Lawrence has been talking about, plus all the wonderful stuff of the gospel. All things are yours. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. 
If you think for a second, oh, I can't believe in science, and I can't listen to read good literature, and I can't listen to good music because it's not like Paul saying all. If it's beautiful and true, it's yours. So stop aligning yourself under certain, even political things. It's all yours. If it's true, it's yours. And this is what Paul is trying to get at. And this is what Paul's saying. Stop with the segregation. Stop doing that. I belong to Christ, and because I belong to Christ, everything that Christ has, I get. Now, this is what I, how I want to close this morning. Because this focus has been on leadership, I want to pray for our leaders in this church. And so, if you are a community group leader, or a community group host, or a team lead, or a leader in this church on the prayer team, or whatever, would you stand up right now? Stand up. Team lead, community group leader, host, Yeah, praise God for these people. Stand, stay, stay standing. This is, where, this is where it gets awesome and maybe creepy. If you're around them, would you stand up and lay your hands on them? And we're going to pray for them. I was joking about creepy. It doesn't get creepy at all. Let's pray for them as leaders in this church. God, I thank you for these leaders in this church that have been sacrificing and giving their time and their effort for this church and and the people in this church, God. I pray that you would guard their hearts, their purity, their holiness, their doctrine, God. I pray that you'd guard the unity that surrounds them, God. I pray that their community groups or teams that they're building or whatever they're doing in here for the glory of God, there'd be great unity. I pray, God, that you would, uh, you would use them, that you would give them your Holy Spirit because they need your spirit to lead rightly, God. I pray they'd be humble in their approach and bold in the gospel. And I pray for those that gather around them as we look to them as leaders. I pray that we would pray for our leaders and obey our leaders, God. I know that we have a problem with authority and we confess that to you. But I pray you break that. We thank you for this church and we pray, God, I pray that we would build this church with good, precious material. That you would keep us from error. I know we've made mistakes. I know that, God. Would you forgive us? Would you bring unity in this church and in the church in San Francisco? And I pray that people would not, would not be of reality. I pray that people would be of Christ. I pray that would be real and that we would even, it wouldn't be, it, it, would, it wouldn't diminish a lack of, of accountability to a local church. It would enhance it, God. Do that in Jesus' name.